There were a lot of democratic institutions that existed in a whole range of human societies and not exclusively European ones. You can find early democratic governments in North America prior to European conquest in pre-colonial Africa, in ancient India. You know, the list could go on, but it was quite a widespread phenomenon. This is the Innovation Civilization Podcast. My name is Wahidu Rahman. Today's guest, David Sasavage. Hi, my name is David Stasavage. I'm the author of the book, The Decline and Rise of Democracy. I teach political science at NYU, where I also serve as the dean for the social sciences. We covered on the podcast the definitions of democracy and its first principle. Early democracy had fewer specific rules about elections or political parties, but it was still democracy. You can think of early democracy being supplanted by modern democracy as a result of the democratic revolutions in North America and Western Europe in the 18th century and transitions in the 19th century. People today, what they think democracy is, they may refer to the presence of elections in which multiple political parties compete. And that's certainly the most salient feature of modern democracy. But if you look around at the history of many different human societies, I think you realize that there's a broader definition of democracy that we can adopt. David also talks about in the book about early forms of democracy in the Islamic world and China, too. Pre-Islamic Arabia was a region in which you had various forms of collective consent-based governance. It was an area where people were very mobile, even nomadic, where if they weren't happy with a specific ruler, they could just move elsewhere. And what's interesting about that tradition of early democracy is you do see that in certain passages in the Quran, for example, referring to the principle of shura or council, you know, governing through council, seeking counsel. And some people think in the West that Islam is somehow inimical to democracy. That's very much not the case. What happened is that as a result of the conquests, the caliphs ended up conquering the Sasanian dynasty in present-day Iraq, southern Iraq, which had a very rich agricultural heartland and a bureaucracy and an autocratic form of rule. And they were able to basically appropriate that state and make it for themselves. And so suddenly they had massive means of coercion and things flipped as a result of that. China has a pattern of political development that is different from the Middle East, from the earliest historical dynasties. We see a pattern of a single fairly large entity governing from a large capital that has a large population that a bureaucracy begins to develop quite early in China and emperors use this as a means of gaining information and exerting coercion. We also talk about how Europe took a completely different trajectory compared to China and the Islamic world when it comes to democracy. The thing to recognize about Europe is that it takes an awful long time for Europeans after the fall of the Roman Empire to build a bureaucratic state. When we think about European developments at the time, we were getting the development of European parliaments in the 13th century and events like Magna Carta that we tend to think of these as very important. But we need to also recognize that in terms of their ability to extract revenue from their population, the Europe, Western European states at this time were far, far behind China uh, and also far, far behind the, the caliphate. As you will see that it's the difference is something that was almost roughly 10 to 1. It's 
also would be true with respect to measures of economic development, where at this time, China and the Middle East were significantly ahead of, of Europe. Is democracy and democratic institution building tied to economic development, especially for the case of countries who are at least economically developed? We covered that too. We often assume that democracy on average is going to lead to economic development. That may be the case sometimes, others less so. One needs to be careful about it. It's certainly the case that economists and political scientists have spent an enormous amount of time trying to demonstrate either that democracy promotes economic development or that it doesn't. And I think there's some evidence that it does on average, but you need to consider there's a lot of cases where it would be favorable to economic development and others where it may not make as much of a difference. That and much more coming right up. David, glad to have you on the Innovation Civilization podcast. What an immense pleasure to have you here with us today. Thanks for having me. Brilliant. So let's get right into it. David, can you tell us a bit more about your background and how and why you came about writing a book on democracy from antiquity and then comparing it with different regions? Well, so I've been studying the development of representative institutions and democratic institutions in Europe for something like, uh, let's say, 25 years. And I've written extensively on that on Western Europe, but pretty much only exclusively on Western Europe. And I, I wrote an article few years back on the what I asked why representative institutions arose in Western Europe and not elsewhere. And as soon as I published that article, I realized as I started to work further on this topic, actually, there were a lot of democratic institutions that existed in a whole range of human societies and not exclusively European ones. And so as soon as I came to that realization after reading further, I decided that it was time to write a book on this, on the sort of the global history of democracy and not just a European history of democracy. Yeah, that's very fascinating. And I'm sure we'll get into some of that. So let's kind of take this one at a time. What's your definition of democracy, David? And I ask this because different people I've heard talk about it in different ways in terms of definitions. Is it counting just votes based on some kind of universal suffrage? Or is it more about equal distribution of power between institutions to have checks and balances? Yeah. So how would you define democracy exactly for our listeners for the rest of the conversation here? Well, so when you ask people today in many countries, particularly Western countries, what they think democracy is, they may refer to the presence of elections in which multiple political parties compete. And that's certainly the most salient feature of modern democracy. But if you look around the history of many different human societies, I think you realize that there's a broader definition of democracy that we can adopt. And I think it's just actually one that the Greeks themselves proposed. They didn't talk about elections or parties. They said the word democracy or democratia, they call it, simply meant that the people had power, that the people governed. And so it's possible to imagine the people governing in different ways, not necessarily through elections or through political parties. And over time, many human societies have practiced very different ways of having the people govern. And so I prefer that broad definition because I think it's the most inclusive. So when you say people governing, is this more like a, some kind of like a consensus-based system? Or yeah, or that, what does that look like? Yes. Yeah, so, so it's a consensus-based system where, say, you have an assembly in which a fraction of the population participates, or maybe in some cases you have a narrower council where representatives of the population 
organization who are selected in one way or another discuss mm -hmm. in the name of the people. It refers to that sort of collective governance. It doesn't refer to a single ruler claiming to rule in the name of the people without actually ever consulting the people or their representatives. Okay, cool. So I think in your book, you mentioned basically this distinction between early democracy and modern democracy. So can you talk about some of the kind of first principles of it? Is it related to, like you said, one is consent-based and one is just voting? Yeah, that's right. So modern democracy, you think of the institution or institutions as they have arisen over the last 250 years or so, where we have executives and legislatures that we select through elections. We, as the people, really only govern to the extent that we choose those people periodically. We don't govern directly. We don't actually implement or choose policies directly. And that's a particular form of governance that's existed, you know, as I said, for about two and a half centuries. Early democracy, as I refer to it in the book, was a much longer term phenomenon existing in many societies, particularly small scale societies where people governed more directly often and had more extensive participation in terms of councils or assemblies at the village level, at a community level or what, what have you. And so early democracy had fewer specific rules about elections or political parties, but it was still democracy in the sense that the, the, the Greeks defined it as the people having power. That's very interesting. Can you tell us some of the examples of these kind of early democracies that you basically mentioned in the book? Well, they existed in a surprising variety of regions, actually. It, that's one of the features of early democracy. It was not specific to one region or a couple of regions. So you can find early democratic governance in North America prior to European conquest. You can find it in pre-colonial Africa. There's examples of early democratic governance in ancient India. You know, the list could go on, but it was quite a widespread phenomenon. That's very interesting. So can you give us like a quick compressed summary? <laughs> I know this is asking quite a lot. Compressed kind of timeline of the birth of democracy to all the way to today, basically. So was it the Greeks didn't originate democracy? Right. The, the Greeks gave us the idea and they gave us the language and a lot of ideas for thinking about democracy. And they were mm -hmm. incredibly influential and were insightful pioneers in that regard. I don't mean at all to diminish their contribution. And I talk about it extensively in the book. But what I suggest is that they weren't the first or the only ones to invent democratic practices. Democracy is not something that got invented at one place and one time. It's something that merged naturally in a wide variety of human societies. And you can think of early democracy being supplanted by modern democracy as a result of the democratic revolutions in North America and Western Europe in the 18th century and transitions in the 19th century. And then you can think about that modern democracy was spread to the rest of the world because, of course, the Europeans colonized almost the rest of the world. And so everybody else ended up after independence with somewhat European looking institutions. But if you talk about the birth of early democracy, it's hard to go. You'd have to go all the way back to the, the first moments when humans were trying to organize themselves in a group mm -hmm. and sitting around a fire discussing something and discussing how to do things or what, make, making a decision that needed to be made. And so there's really no specific birth date for it. That's very interesting. And the fact that you somehow define democracy as if you discuss something with someone and then take a consent-based decision. So that's like a democratic process in essence, so. basically. Yeah. Okay, cool. 
One of the regions we talk about is democracy in the Islamic world, and that's your region, almost hailing from the Balkans all the way to Bengal, as they call it, and the Malay Peninsula as well. Islam as a religion started off in the heartlands of Arabia with the Prophet Muhammad. The Rashidun Caliphates followed, and then it became more of a dynastic play with the Umayyads and the Abbasids and so on and so forth. What's interesting to note for our listeners, and David covers this later too, is that that epoch of time between to 13th century after Christ in terms of technological, economic, political, and civilization advancement, it was quite the flourishing region and completely eclipsing medieval Europe at that time, which was pretty much a backwater after the Roman Empire kind of weakened. This is very much in contrast to the Islamic world currently we see today, which seems to be in quite the turmoil along pretty much every dimension one can argue as well sometimes. David's research covers a lot of the history of the Islamic world, so it's very interesting to understand what role democracy exactly played in the early Islamic world and what exactly happened there. Pre-Islamic Arabia was a region in which you had various forms of collective consent-based governance. It was an area where people were very mobile, even nomadic, where if they weren't happy with a specific ruler, they could just move elsewhere. And that the tradition was for there to be individual rulers, but who would compelled to govern in a consent base because they had no alternative, really. They had no bureaucracy. They had no state to rely on. They had weak means of coercion. And what's interesting about that tradition of early democracy is you do see that in certain Passages in the Quran, for example, referring to the principle of shura or counsel, you know, governing through counsel, seeking counsel. And that existed for some time. But in the areas that were conquered by Arab armies in the 7th century, you got a mm -hmm. massive political transformation. And the transformation didn't really have anything to do with the, the spiritual or religious content of Islam itself. Some people think in the West that Islam is somehow inimical to democracy. That's very much not the case. What happened is that as a result of the conquests, the caliphs ended up conquering the Sasanian dynasty in present-day Iraq, southern Iraq, which had a very rich agricultural heartland and a bureaucracy and an autocratic form of rule. And they were able to basically appropriate that state and make it for themselves. And so suddenly they had massive means of coercion and things flipped as a result of that. They didn't need to rely on consent. They didn't need to rely on governing collectively. They were able to rule as autocrats. That's very interesting. And is it basically you say that the ruler relies on decentralized pieces of information and that's why early democracy was a thing? Right. If you think about it, autocracy itself, meaning one person rules, is something of a misnomer because no one truly rules exclusively on their own. In, in anything above the smallest scale society, rulers need to have people that they work through to get mm -hmm. things done. And what I see is that the principal alternative to early democracy was to have a bureaucracy, to have subordinates that you choose, you remunerate or reward in some way, and they work for you. And they find out information about, for example, what people can produce and therefore how much they should be taxed or how many people they can provide for an army or something like that or what they can provide in terms of labor for contributions. And so they find out this information and they enforce your decisions. Early democracy is the opposite of that in the sense that in an early democracy, there, no, there was no state, there was no bureaucracy. And the consequence was is that lacking those means of coercion and information 
information rulers had to rule, had to govern collectively. That's very interesting. So just coming back to basically your point on Shura. So what you're mentioning is the early Rashidun caliphates had more of a democratic process of Shura-based council. And then it was, I guess, lost from the Umayyads onwards, I think. Yes, that's right. It, I mean, it, it is particularly with the regard to the choice of the, the first few caliphs that there mm-hmm. was a Shura process. We don't know that for certain. But what's interesting is some people think it's important to say that that is actually what happened. And they cherished the idea of Shura, which, as exactly as you say, as I write in the book, goes out the window with the Umayyad and then subsequently with the Abbasids. Yeah. And, and you're basically mentioning it's more a case of them incorporating the Sassanid model of, I guess, governance, that is the reason and rationale for that, basically. Precisely. They were able to appropriate and inherit an entirely different form of rule and the resources to make that entirely different form of rule happen. Okay, that makes sense. That's very interesting, actually. I mean, that's the first time I've heard about that kind of theory of kind of settled agriculture, tax collection and Sassanid lands like you talk about, really. Right, right. It was a very sophisticated uh, civilization and sophisticated mm. form of governance. It's just it wasn't very democratic. Mm. Yeah, I think you mentioned something about more the standardization and unification of maybe policies as well as kind of mechanisms of governance, despite of being a big geography, I think you mentioned that was quite interesting. Right. I mean, it's the standardization of weights and measures and things like that were very important for helping deal with those information problems that a ruler might face. Because if you had all sorts of different systems of weights and measures and whatnot, then it's harder to write things down and keep track of them and know exactly how what, how to count things and what units you're counting. And so I think that, that was very important and very sophisticated. Yes. Although modern China is becoming a developed society, however, the history of China has taken a course of its own when it comes to democracy. And this is something we covered with David as well. China has a pattern of political development that is different from the Middle East, as we just described it, where the Middle East starts off with early democracy and then moves towards a more autocratic form of governance. It's very different from Europe that starts off and has early democratic forms of governance, develops a bureaucratic state only much later. In China, the state comes first and you don't really get any collective Count governance by councils or assemblies at all, or shall we say, at least apart from in a, a few fleeting moments. Mm-hmm. And so from the earliest historical dynasties mm-hmm. that we have evidence for and know about, we see a pattern of a single fairly large entity governing from a large capital that has a large population that a bureaucracy begins to develop quite early in China and emperors use this as a means of gaining information and exerting coercion. And therefore, because they succeed in doing this, they're able to avoid a situation where they need to govern through consent or through counsel or asking, avoid having to have to ask the people or their representatives what they should do. And this was in Song Dynasty or yeah, what is the inflection point start? Well, I think the inflection point starts really, really early, as early as we know. The first 
dynasty, the Shah dynasty, we lack any written records from. So that's largely based on tradi- later tradition. But we do have records for the uh, the Shang dynasty from the second millennium BC, where we see patterns developed like this. And especially with the subsequent dynasty, the Zhou dynasty, in the uh, mostly the first millennium before the Common Era, we see the development of the bureaucratic state. And that tendency just increases over time. And so the remarkable thing about China is, to, in spite of the fact that we do have this oscillation of dynasties rise, dynasties fall. At times, it looks like China might actually fall apart or break up into multiple kingdoms. But we always get the return of a new dynasty and the return of a new dynasty governing on this model of using a state bureaucracy as the means of implementing rule Mm -hmm. and not attempting to govern through the people via councils or assemblies or something like that. Okay, that's very interesting. And I think you've got a graph in your book, and then we'll share this with the readers as well, if you're happy after. I think you show basically the tax collection from Abbasid or Rashidun Caliphates in China was far beyond Europe, actually, as well, in terms of raw numbers, right? So yeah, can you talk a bit more on that phenomenon, basically, what's happening? Yeah, that's right. So that's reflecting the strength of the Chinese state and of the Abbasid state in that we tend to think of democracy as sort of more advanced than other systems of governance, but it wasn't nearly always the case. And when we think about European developments at the time that say we were getting the development of European parliaments in the 13th century and events like Magna Carta, that we tend to think of these as as very important, which they were, of course, for European history. But we need to also recognize that in terms of their ability to extract revenue from their population, the Europe, Western European states at this time were far, far behind China uh, and also far, far behind the, the caliphate. As you will see that it's the difference is something it's almost it's roughly 10 to 1, perhaps. And that that's right. peak the Song dynasty is extracting about 10 percent of revenue, which is extraordinary for a, a civilization mm-hmm. that did not have access to modern means of communication and transport. Mm-hmm. European states at the same time, roughly the same time, are extracting only about 1% of GDP in revenue from their society. Okay. So it's almost like they've become so big and so successful, and then they basically stopped being democratic. I'm talking about Abbasids, uh, like the Muslim empires in, in China, versus Europe, which started off, I guess, at a more kind of lower place, I guess. Yes, also, that's right. It also would be true with respect to measures of economic development, where at this time, China and the Middle East were significantly ahead of Europe. How is democracy tied to the idea of economic development? Does adopting modern democracy automatically bring in development and prosperity along all dimensions? Do countries become richer as they adopt democracy? Or do countries get rich and educated first, and then they can sustain democracy? It was interesting to cover what David had to say on this topic. I think we should value democracy for its own sake as a primary principle that a lot of people in many places seem to have an inherent desire to participate in governance, to participate in affairs, to see how things are decided. And so that seems like a a, a very natural thing that humans often seek. And so if that's the case, then if you have that sentiment, then it might be thought that 
democracy should be sought for its own sake. What I try to to say in the book is that we often assume that democracy on average is going to lead to economic development. That may be the case sometimes, others less so. One needs to be careful about that particular prediction. It's certainly the case that economists and political scientists have spent an enormous amount of time trying to demonstrate either that democracy promotes economic development or that it doesn't. And it's been a hard conflict on the two sides. And I think there's some evidence that it does on average, but you need to consider there's a lot of cases where it would be favorable to economic development and others where it may not make as much of a difference. So don't seek democracy purely because you think it's going to make you rich. Seek democracy because it's something that a lot of humans naturally desire. Yeah. Okay. And and just double clicking on that, can you describe some of the evidence on either sides, basically, for our listeners? Well, so the modern contemporary evidence from the last, say, 50 to 60, 70 years, the best statistical evidence seems to suggest that, yes, on average, democracies do grow somewhat faster than non-democracies. But again, there's a lot of variation around that individual country experience. That's an average, not an Mm -hmm. individual country experience. What I try to say in the book is I take that into account. And then I also say, that what's clear is that in earlier times, countries or states that had less democratic forms of governance often tend to be more advanced. We just spoke about the Abbasid Caliphate and the Chinese Empire, which in many ways, in terms of economic and technological developments, were far in advance of Western Europe at the time. So that's something to take into account, that maybe it hasn't always been the case that democracies were ahead. I think one of the big questions for democracy, and this is an unresolved one, is if science itself, which we think was absolutely critical for the the Industrial Revolution and subsequent development, science is something that prospers much better in a democratic setting than in an autocratic setting. And that's a really important and interesting question, one that's ultimately also difficult to grapple with. Yeah, and it's very interesting because the last episode we had was on the Apollo space missions in the Cold War, basically, and different mechanisms of the Soviets to run their projects versus right. the Americans, really, yeah really, yeah. So I guess some evidence there about science prospering more under democratic forms. Although right now, I guess I'm not sure what you would think about and what would you say about China and its kind of technological innovations currently in the last two decades, how kind of democratic that is, basically. Right. Well, that's a a big question. Talk about, say, artificial intelligence, deep learning, Mm -hmm. very sophisticated, very fast advances happening in countries like the United States today. Also, big advances happening in China. Chinese advances more generally in the areas of technology are quite astounding. As are things in the U.S., I mean, you could use the example of the vaccines where the COVID vaccines that the U.S. has developed are more effective than the the Chinese, the the Sinopharm vaccine. Some people would like to suggest, well, yes, Chinese science will be hindered ultimately by the lack of a democratic form of rule where there's more opportunity to discuss things openly and have Mm -hmm. float ideas without fear of of retribution. But I think the jury's still out on that one. We're going to have to see you know, revisit the discussion in 10 or 20 years and we might have a better idea if that's true or not. Yeah, the only fact is that it might be too late in 10 or 20 years. Right. <laughs> in terms of the rise of all of empires, really. But yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, I mean, that definitely makes sense. So let's talk about Europe a bit more. I think you've got a huge section there on Europe in the book. You said basically it takes a different trajectory versus your China and the Islamic world in terms of democracy. And medieval Europe was obviously much weaker. And so, yeah, can you tell basically how... Europe came about and why was it basically that Britain, I guess, first and then the U.S. became the kind of bastions of modern democracy? Well, so the thing to recognize about Europe, I think the most salient fact is that it takes 
an awful long time for Europeans after the fall of the Roman Empire to build a bureaucratic state, really until the 18th or even the 19th century in some cases. So that's the salient feature is that European rulers right the way through from the fall of Rome until the early modern period had very weak states in comparative terms. And if you have a weak state, that means that you really don't have much of an alternative except to try to govern in some way collectively with the people. In some cases, this happens at small scale in autonomous cities that govern themselves collectively. It can happen in larger entities, kingdoms, where you have kings who are certainly not elected and they're inheriting their position, or perhaps they seize their position by force, but who nonetheless feel compelled to govern in this some members of society and parliaments because they have no alternative. They need these parliaments to help them find out information, to set taxes. They need these parliaments to agree to taxes. In many cases, the parliaments themselves are, the representatives are responsible for collecting the taxes. And so that's why this is not democracy at this point in the Middle Ages, but it's a pattern of political development that is more collective and fundamentally different from that you see in China with the early development of a precocious development of a strong bureaucratic state. And so it leads over time to an expansion of participation as you get a, a broader suffrage, as you get elections, as you get, get universal suffrage, first for men, subsequently for women. And that is is, you know, the thing that really makes European countries distinct in that regard. Yeah, that's very interesting. And for me, what was interesting also that you mentioned in the book was that Aristotle, right? Aristotle's writings were popular, not very, very much popular in Europe before the 1200s, right? But was certainly uh, in the Islamic world. However, in the Islamic world, his ideas of democracy didn't really take off that much. No, that's right. That's absolutely fascinating. And I would love to know more about that, actually, because certainly Aristotle's works, other works, were known in the Islamic world and used in a way that you know, Europeans had lost track of them. But when you think about Aristotle's discussions of different forms of rule and of democracy versus oligarchy and so on, all which can be found in the politics, I think in the Islamic world, the politics didn't have much of an impact. People didn't really think much about it. Maybe I'm wrong on that one. I'd love to know more about what was written. But in Europe, what happens instead is that Aristotle and, and other classical authors come to be much more influential with regard to thinking about politics. But it's also the case, of course, that in many cases, as I say in the book, Europeans do this on their own so that independent cities governing themselves as in ways not totally different from early democracy arising themselves mm -hmm. on their own. And it's only after that that Aristotle get the politics gets translated. So it's not because people who read the politics that they said, oh, we should organize it this way. It's sort of the other way around. And how much of you think an impact in Europe does the idea of basically the Westphalian state and then 1500s and 1600s suffrage. So how does that impact the democratic theory of Europe, basically. The Westphalian system used to be that people talked about 1648 as this really firm, absolutely critical moment where things changed dramatically and sovereignty now became the key coin of the realm. And a lot has been written subsequently to argue, I think, actually, that it wasn't as much of a foundational moment and sovereignty continued to be violated in all sorts of different ways. But certainly, I think what you get emerging in Europe is this idea of a nation state. And this idea mm -hmm. of, of a nation state that then the question becomes, how does that 
link up with democracy and how does that link with the question of who should participate or not participate in governance? Fair. Okay. So it's all happening at the same time, basically. That's right. Okay, cool. That makes sense, really. And I think one other thing interesting I found in the book was what you mentioned about democracy. It's a question of whether it helps reduce inequality or not. And I think you've got some interesting thoughts in there if you want to share with us. Yeah, a lot of people don't like inequality and they like democracy. And we might think that democracy and low inequality would sort of go together. After mm -hmm. all, if it's the people ruling, then you would expect that most people are not rich. And therefore, if they're making decisions mm -hmm. directly or indirectly through the representatives, policies would be chosen that reduce inequality. And in practice, what's happened over the last two 200 years is that there have been times where democracy coincided with a fair degree of economic equality. But it's also been the case that democracies have emerged and survived in cases where inequality was mm -hmm. rampant. And so the conclusion there, it's an interesting one, I think, is to say, well, you shouldn't assume that democracy is inevitably going to reduce inequality. And then paradoxically, in some cases, it's because it doesn't do what you want in terms of reducing inequality, but it also means that democracy has a tendency to survive often, even in the face of high inequality. So it's a form of democracy that doesn't do what we want, but it's still around, if that makes sense. That makes sense. And, and again, can you give us the kind of evidence on both sides of the coin here, basically? Yeah, I mean, I think the evidence is if you just did a cross-section of countries and you plotted out sort of some measure of democracy against some measure of inequality, then you tend to find that democracies on the whole are more equal. But that's not really mm -hmm. a great research design. What you'd really like to be doing is looking at changes within countries over time and say, when a country shifts to democracy or from democracy to autocracy, do you see a corresponding change in inequality? And that bulk of the evidence we have on this issue from inequality over the long run of the sort that Thomas Piketty pioneered the measure of, that you really observe that the massive reduction in inequality that we saw during the early and middle parts of the 20th century in Europe and elsewhere only happened a very substantial amount of time after countries became democracies, after they established universal suffrage. And so the impact of democracy on inequality is just not as clear there. It seems that the events surrounding the world wars, the Great Depression, technological transformations may have had much more of an impact on inequality than democracy did. Yeah, and that's fascinating to me because, as you said, there are so many different confounding variables happening at the same time affecting inequality, affecting progress, whether it's technological kind of changes, right? Or it's the universal suffrage or it's the adoption of kind of uh, democracy. So it's kind of difficult, right, to chart right. out what is the kind of main variable that's really taking away things here. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. That makes sense, really. And so I think you also mentioned how the U.S. was one of the main places where modern day democratic model was really invented. And I think you go into a bit of details on how that came about and why U.S. specifically over, say, Britain or France or anywhere in Europe. So can you elucidate more on that? Well, yeah. So, the, I mean, the U.S., pioneers in good and very bad ways, right? In terms of it, pioneers in terms of universal suffrage, at least for free white males, but it also is the country which maintained a chattel form of slavery long after other countries had abolished it. And curiously enough, those two tendencies, slavery and democracy, or slavery and universal suffrage, had a common underpinning in that I think 
if you look at North America when it was settled after European conquest, what you have is a tremendous abundance of land and a shortage of labor. And the shortage of labor is solved in two ways. The first way is to have uh, European and particularly British settlers come over. But there's a lot of land. It's a long journey. You need to entice people to do this. So you might need to offer them, say, political rights or the right to vote in exchange for taking the passage over to England. And then once they get there, you realize there's abundant land. They might just be able to take off and do their own thing. It's not like you can rule them in an autocratic fashion. And so I think you get a broad suffrage for free white males in the colonial period, which is maintained as a result of this pattern of settlement, where basically you have no bureaucratic state, you have no means of coercing these people, of governing themselves, you have to govern jointly with them. And so that's why we get this precocious development of a broad suffrage in America. Now, the second way in which the labor shortage was solved was if you bring over enslaved Africans, then they don't have as good of an option as other settlers did from Europe. And you saw the labor shortage in the most undemocratic way possible, which is to own other people. So basically, it was more because there was no kind of centralized state. And then they relied on, as you mentioned before, lots of information sources, which was decentralized, basically. Correct. Um, yeah. So you see that kind of repeating in and flipped out way, basically, in the Abbasid and China, and then here a certain different way as well. That's right. It's coming back to the fact that you don't have anything resembling a centralized bureaucratic state. Mm, yeah. Okay, cool. And when you say bureaucracy, like how would you exactly define a bureaucracy? The key way I try to emphasize it in the book is say it's the difference between governing collectively with someone versus governing through subordinates who you okay. have recruited and who you reward in, or maybe punish also sometimes in some way, be that through monetary means or other means. And so it's a fundamentally style of governance. It's the sense it's like you work for me, where if, if you're governing collectively in an assembly or a council, uh, a ruler isn't telling people you work for me. It's saying like, okay, we need to decide this as a group. I may be the, the first mm -hmm. among equals, but ultimately... The group has to come to a decision. But how does this work, though? Because um, say in a council like or, or like an assembly, and I know some tribal kind of states, for example, in the early Ottoman and early Seljuk days, they obviously had the councils and assemblies, but also those people from the councils and assemblies were also carrying out or executing the orders of, they say, the tribe elder, you know, the tribe leader. So they're like civil servants as well as council members, really. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so there's an interesting tradition there. When I lay out this difference between governing by council with members of society versus bureaucracy, those are two sort of ideal types. In practice, you can often get this mixing. And it's interesting what happens with the Byzantine Empire is the, the Byzantine Empire has a Senate modeled on the old Roman Senate. It's initially a Senate that looks something like what we think of as a Senate today as sort of representatives or people rising to that position. So, But over time, what happens to the Byzantine Senate is it gets transformed in a bureaucratic way in that rulers are appointing people to the Senate who are simultaneously serving as bureaucratic officials. And so then you're losing the early democratic element. You may be getting these bureaucrats together in a group to meet, but now they're working for you. They're not working with you. I see. It's very interesting to me because I work in technology. And so we use agile project management, basically, for software, mm -hmm. building software products. And 
So there's this framework, it's called the Scrum framework, and it's kind of well known after 2002, basically create software. And one of the roles of the Scrum framework is a Scrum master. And the idea is that this person, the Scrum master and or the product owner is basically the first among equals. And it is quite similar in a way that they're executing, they're part of the team, really. But at the end of the day, they do also call the shots, really. So I guess that's your kind of mixtured model of democracy as well. Right, exactly. And I actually have a paper mm-hmm. that I wrote for, I think it was Noema magazine with mm-hmm. a guy named Nathan Schneider, where we talk about the the relevance of early democracy for governance in the tech world. That's very fascinating, really. Do you care to explain some of the kind of key takeaways? Well, we saw that there's a parallel. Remember, we spoke of early democracy as being a situation where there was little in terms of means of coercion and there was decentralized information. And so you get the model of like what they had with, I think it's Python, the idea of the the concept of the benevolent dictator for life, that there may be someone at the center who's either the benevolent dictator for life or the scrum master, whatever you might want to call them. But just as in an early democracy, the the individual members of a group have a lot of information and they can also choose to exit when they want or not participate and not keep contributing. And so that's the thing that ultimately disciplines the person at the center and keeps them from becoming not a benevolent dictator, but a malevolent dictator. I love that wordplay, really. And how would you think about hierarchies, really? So I think there's this idea that we should get rid of all hierarchies. It should be just like a flat structure. But then again, if you see the animal kingdom, as well as kind of maybe in the human world as well, it's it's hierarchies of competence uh, a lot more times than hierarchy of power. You know, hierarchies of power also happen. So how would you think about hierarchies and democracy, really? Yeah, well, that's an honest question that people ask in that Western democracies today or in any democracy today, we have incredible amounts of hierarchies. That's just a fact. But they're not official hierarchies. There are, the very idea of modern democracy is that there is no hierarchy. That's never actually implemented, but it's the idea. And so it's an interesting question to ask about whether some people, I think, there's a book that was recently published, I think by Princeton University Press, I'm trying to remember, by someone who was trying to come up with an argument, I believe it was a, a Chinese scholar, coming up with an argument for some degree of hierarchy based on, as you say, based on competence, based on expertise, it could be based on experience. People have been in a profession for longer, may know more, may know better, and such things. So, yeah, but the, you're right, that the very idea of hierarchy does not sit with modern yeah. democracy. Yeah, exactly. And I say that because I work in kind of projects management teams, right? So if you've got a bunch of folks who are maybe equally experienced and you've got a problem, so the person who knows how to solve a problem will eventually end up taking a lead, you know? So there's almost like a natural hierarchy that's forming. And then the rest of the folks become more like executionists as well of that, you know? But fascinating to me how that's kind of slightly natural as well, that people slightly become hierarchical in order to solve complex problems in society. Yeah, but that's a sort of, that's a fleeting hierarchy, I guess, because the one person may know to solve the current problem, but they're not mm-hmm. necessarily the one who can best solve the next problem. Got it. Okay, cool. That's That would be the question. And so then what's interesting then is you say it's really you're describing a situation where there's a great decentralization 
of expertise and knowledge. It's not like one person has acquired so much more expertise and so much more knowledge than anybody. And maybe that's the idea of democracy as well, basically, that you've got five-year windows, a person gets elected to solve problems because they're the best person by social validation, i.e. voting, right? And then once they don't do a good job, ideally, the next person comes in who's got tons of social validation off their expertise, really. I think you could describe it that way. That's right. I guess the other thing is that if you see from antiquity to today, it's democracy is more like experimentation. You know, it's got different permutations. And currently we're at, uh, I don't know, for V6 or V7, right? But is there a case that there can be like a version 10, version 11, and it's always experimenting and applying? Yes. And I think that's important because up until recently, when we thought about, or a lot of people wrote about democracy, they wrote about it in a way where they would suggest that, well, these great people got together in the 18th or 19th century and came up with these democratic ideas and practices and institutions and we've been using them ever since. And this is what democracy is. But if you think about the idea that democracy in one form or another has existed for thousands of years in a lot of different places, it's often existed in ways that look very different uh, from our democracy today. And remember, we were just talking about one tech governance that looks more like early democracy than modern democracy. There are no elections in the tech world. So I think as we think about our own modern democracies, we need to accept the fact that these are going to evolve if they're going to survive. They probably need to evolve in ways. And so there may be very significant institutional transformations that take place that mean that our modern democracies down the road look substantially different than they do today. Yeah. And and that's very interesting to me. And certainly we can't end without talking about this, obviously. So as we speak, basically, the Taliban, the government forming some kind of government, right? And it's just fascinating to me, basically, that obviously in the Islamic world, like you said, first rise and the decline of democracy. And then you've got basically different folks going in different directions. So you've got the Iranian model, Turkish model and Saudi Arabia, and then obviously now the Taliban. So it'd be good to see basically how they come about and go about instilling early democratic values or not at all, really. So yeah, that kind of experimentation and, and the result of that is basically very fascinating as an observer, like a layman observer for me to watch. Yeah. So I think one of the big questions that's going to happen is whether the weight of the exit option is going to prompt the Taliban to have to govern in a certain way. Remember, we talked about pre-Islamic Arabia and other areas where when you're a ruler or a ruling group and the people you're trying to rule can just take off and move elsewhere, Yeah. then you may need to consult with them and govern with them and so on. And so there's a lot of discussion about this currently that Afghanistan today is much different than it was in 1996. There's an internet, there's extreme connectivity. There are a lot of well-educated, very talented people. And we've just seen a very large number of well-educated, talented people get up and leave. And so one has to think that if, unless they're going to want to govern a, a sort of failed state that's propped up maybe by aid from sources other than the U.S. or elsewhere, that ultimately they may face, you know, the need to govern in a slightly different way because they need people to stick around. And that, the, you know, the people who have some of the skills that are desperately in need may just take off. 
Now, I don't have no idea whether it's going to work that way, but I think that's a question to be, it's a question to ask. That's very interesting. And I have to ask you this as well. So there's this idea I've heard as I've traveled throughout the kind of the Middle East and other places that people often have the idea that autocratic thinking is something embedded within the culture. And maybe it's a result of some of the political baggage of the last, you know, like five or six centuries. And I think you've elucidated that in your book as well, when you've mentioned that when the British and the French colonized these places, they didn't necessarily rule in a democratic way, right? So how much do you think there is truth to that statement, really, that maybe autocratic governance and autocracy is more like a mindset embedded in the culture versus something else, really? Well, okay, so it's a mindset maybe in the sense of not in like that people are superstitious or people are ignorant or something like that. It could be that people are very smart. It's just that Mm -hmm. over time, societies get used to behaving in certain ways, right? And it's you may want democracy, but if you're in a setting where you think it's completely infeasible, what are you going to do? It might be better to just sort of tolerate what's going on and not stick your head above the parapet. And so what I think is that, yes, it's probably a question of how what the alternative would be and how would it actually work? That is the big question. Yeah, Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that makes sense, really. And also, like the other thing I see in the kind of emerging markets is this question of, okay, do you need a good benevolent dictator, basically, to make lots and lots of economic progress and, and, and then bring in democracy, something like South Korea, I guess, you know, in, in, in some ways. Or even if you think about Singapore, maybe it has the forms of early democracy, right? But not like later democracy. So that's also like a question, would you need kind of benevolent dictators first do lots and lots of development and then have democracy? Yeah. So that's very interesting. Yeah, it's unclear. I mean, you'd have to rerun the Korean experiment mm-hmm. again with mm-hmm. them becoming a democracy much earlier Correct. to predict. I mean, there's certainly a whole set of economic policies in Korea enormously successful in helping to generate economic development, but it's not clear that those would have necessarily not been chosen had Korea been a democracy earlier than whatever date you want to pick. Correct. Yeah, that makes sense. So moving swiftly forward, so let's talk about democracy today and how democracy looks like today. So you've painted a good picture of early democracy to today. So what's your opinion on democracy as it's going today, and in particular, the case of the US and technology coming in there, and as well as the rise of China. So yeah, where where do you think the world is going in terms of your lens of democracy? Well, there's no doubt that in, in the United States today, we've seen incredible challenges and incredible threats to democracy of the sort that no one would have expected 20 years ago, or maybe even 10 years ago. Things have just gone much, much farther than we thought would possibly be the case with, you know, organized attempt to not to contest the legitimacy of an election, a significant minority of the population responding to surveyors by saying that they don't believe the results of the election were fair. So it's quite a very challenging time. And I think when we say that, we need to also simultaneously take a look at the broader picture. And the broader picture is that today, probably, for the first time since Europeans conquered the rest of the world and ruled in a non-democratic fashion, there are more people, a greater fraction of the human population living under democracy than has ever been the case. So if you think about the different waves of democracy that emerged in the the revolutions of the 18th and 19th century, the progress of the early 20th century, that the, the wave of democratization that took place 
after the fall of Berlin Wall in 1989 has been stupendous. And so there are a lot of people living under democracy. And to use different measures that political scientists have concocted to think about whether a country is democracy or not, mm. it's probably something like half the human population lives under democracy today. Really depends whether you think you're a glass half full or a half empty person on what <laughs> your degree of optimism or pessimism. Some people would have said after 1989, well, that's it. Democracy is the wave of the future for everyone. It's just going to expand inevitably. And mm. then if, you, if that was your view, you'd be a bit depressed to say that we're only halfway there. But the alternative is to say that, well, because autocracy has also been a very robust form of alternative governance, that it's maybe quite amazing progress that half of the world, half of the population of the world population is governed more or less democratically. So I think that's that's the conclusion I draw. Cool. Fantastic. Thanks, David, for joining us today on the podcast and hope to have you soon. Well, thanks for having me. Thanks. Thanks very much. I enjoy talking. Cool. And that's the end of the podcast episode. As we know, democracy is an experiment in progress that started a couple of millennia ago and still continuing. Obviously, we'll see different iterations of democracy across different societies, whether it be Asia, Latin America, Western Europe, as well as technology coming in. It's a work in progress and it's an experiment in progress to figure out the best ways of governance. Thank you very much for listening to the Innovation Civilization podcast. If you love the podcast, please subscribe on all major platforms, as well as please share it with your friends and family. Thank you very much for listening and see you soon for the next episode.